You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor Gare Jones. Well, we are in a series called Encountering Jesus. Going through the Gospel of John, looking at this person called Jesus, understanding who he is, getting to know him more as God incarnate. What is God like? And we discover as we look at Jesus. And we've looked at how he interacts with people. You often get to know someone really well in how they treat other people, in how they interact with other people. And the first week we looked at Jesus and the skeptic, looking at how Jesus welcomes tough questions. He welcomes the skeptic. We saw last week Jesus and the religious, how he actually tries to cut through religion with the message of grace, and he's quite blunt about it. Otherwise, we're confused about what Jesus is about. Well, this week we're looking at Jesus and the outcast. Jesus and the outcast. Someone who feels far from God and a bit nervous. Maybe you're here today a bit nervous about being in church. A bit nervous about what does Jesus think or what will the church think about you and your past. I've certainly felt that way. Well, we're looking this morning at what Jesus thinks. How Jesus interacts with the outsider. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, but you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up for eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, uh, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I don't have a husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. The fact is, you've actually had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. So what you've said is very true. Sir, the woman said, Uh, I can see that you're a prophet. (laughs) Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you, Jews, 
claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshippers must worship in Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I'm he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to tell, find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So let's get the scene right. Jesus is traveling, and he's going through Samaria, and it's about noon, and they need a, they need a water break. They need to rest. It's the height of the heat of the day, and so they sit down, and his disciples go into town to get some food and leave Jesus by the well. There's no way of getting any water out of, out of the well. They don't bring jars with them because they're traveling through. And a Samaritan woman comes to the well. And on the face of it, everything is separating Jesus from this Samaritan woman. She is an outsider to his community, to his ethnic group, to his social community even to his gender. You see, in those days, everything culturally, racially, socially, and gender was separating him from her. She was an outsider. First of all, the Jews and the Samaritans were violently opposed to each other. A few hundred years before this time, the Jews had been exiled to Babylon. So I had to leave Jerusalem and under captivity led into a foreign land. But some of the Jews stayed behind because they agreed to kind of assimilate with the locals, to kind of do what God said not to do. And they married the Canaanites and they formed a new religion, a bit of Jewish stuff and a bit of other stuff. Very LA, right? Just like, just like pick what you like and build it together. And this new tribe were called the Samaritans, a bit like the Jews, but also very different. And so the Jewish people looked down upon the Samaritans as heretics, compromisers, outcasts. You were not supposed to associate yourselves because they were unclean. And particularly with women. There was a big gender divide between male and women, which is why the disciples were shocked. What are you doing speaking to a woman? Culturally, at the time, there was a lot dividing Jesus and this woman. But there's also something more. She wasn't just an outsider culturally and in her gender, but also an outsider morally. She came to the water well at noon, which is a very highly unusual time to come. You'd normally come to get your water in the morning when it's cool, but 
She came when no one else was there. She came in the height of the day. She came when no one else would see her. Biblical scholars have pointed out that this is probably because that she had something to hide. She was an outcast even in her own community, that she was alone. Something had happened in her life which made her a moral outcast, even from her own people. So here she is, entering into the story, a radical outsider. I wonder if you've ever felt a radical outsider. You're not too sure if people are going to reject you, not too sure if you're going to fit in, not too sure if people will push you away. Certainly I felt that in coming to church. You know my story, I left the church for many years, I really struggled with church and lived the life of London when I lived there and someone invited me back to church and I was really afraid to go. I felt an outsider. When I walked into the church, I felt flames would engulf me. I felt people, if they knew me, would reject me. How does Jesus respond to people like me, to people like the Samaritan woman, to people who feel an outsider? But what we see immediately is toward the radical outsider, Jesus is radically welcoming. Radically welcoming. We see here that she approaches the well and Jesus immediately says to her, hey, can you get me a drink? That immediately he knows the social barriers, he knows the cultural barriers, he knows that he's not supposed to be talking to a woman in his religious system in in which he was born in. He knows that this is taboo. He knows that she feels on the outside. He probably knows that there's probably something in her past that is actually keeping her excluded from others. He knows the last thing that anybody would expect him to do, a rabbi, is speak to her and yet he knows to the radically outside, God has come to be radically welcoming. And so he reaches out first and says, hey, do you want a drink? Can you get me one? He doesn't care about the social barriers. He doesn't care about the divisions that we put up between us. He doesn't come to shame her, reject her, turn his back on her, exclude her. He comes to welcome I was so surprised when I came back to church. I thought I would be welcomed with flames, with rejection. If you found out about my past, I would be turned away. Or at least looked down upon, at least kind of like, ooh, broken goods. And yet like Jesus with a Samaritan woman, I remember I walked into this church and for the very word go, they did something I was so not expecting. And they welcomed me. They loved me. And when actually they found out about some of the things I'd done, I'd opened up and shared my story, I was for sure then they'd pull back. But actually they lent even more in. You see, Jesus and a church that is like Jesus radically welcomes the outsider. Because we're all outsiders. Jesus radically welcomes those on the outside. But see, there's something more going on here. John wants us to see that this is not just a story about Jesus and a Samaritan woman. 
But there's something for us all. There's something actually thematically going on in John's Gospel, which is one of the beautiful things about John's Gospel. For those who don't know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are biographies of Jesus which overlap in many ways. There's lots of Mark, which is word for word in John, which is word for word in Luke, right? They are very much a a chronological account of the life of Jesus, whereas John writes in a more poetic way, still the biographical truth of Jesus, but he arranges things in a different order to highlight some of the theological themes of what Jesus was about. And he puts details in which trigger, oh my word, there's more going on here than meets the eye. And see, in this story, we have one of John's little triggers. He wants us to see something. And he wants us to see that there's something deeper going on than just Jesus and the Samaritan woman when he mentions that this well happens to be Jacob's well. See, Jacob's well had a big past. There was a significance to Jacob's well. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's significance about wells, about men meaning women at wells, because in other words, this is where God often got people together. This was kind of like the dating scene of the Old Testament. If you wanted to find a date, you didn't have bars or clubs or bumble or whatever it is. You had the well. That's where people would go every day. You'd go to the well. And so all the way through the Old Testament, you had these great significant marriages where people found each other at the well. In Genesis 24, Isaac met Rebekah at the well. Genesis 29, Jacob, this is his well, he met Rachel at the well. Exodus chapter 2, Moses met his wife at the well. And so when John's recounting this story, anybody who knows their Old Testament is reading this story, and it says, Jesus goes to Jacob's well. Hello. (laughs) His disciples have left him. Jesus is all alone. Here we go. A woman approaches, and Jesus says, hey, can you get me a drink? See, all of this is repeating the themes of the Old Testament where everyone would know, oh my word, Jesus is looking for a spouse. Something, this is a romantic moment. But there's a significant twist to this encounter. The story is not the daughter of one of the Jewish religious priests approaches the well. The girl who's always been the prom queen In Jerusalem, the prized catch of the religious system approaches the well. You see, here we have everything opposite to what a Jewish rabbi should be looking for approaches the well. And all of a sudden, this is the story. If you're a Jewish reader and you see a Samaritan woman approaches the well, you're thinking, Jesus, no, no, don't do it. Don't do it. She is not a good fit for you right? She is the opposite of what you should be looking for. Have you ever seen friends and you see them go and they're dating someone and you go, no, that is not a good fit for you. That is what the response of the Jewish community would be when they're reading this. They're thinking, oh my word, this is like Jacob. This is like Isaac. This is like Abraham. But Jesus, no. As we read on, we see 
that Jesus is taking this Old Testament narrative of finding a marriage partner at the well, but reinterpreting it. Not between him and an individual, but God and his people. That throughout the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the great divine bridegroom who's come to find his bride, his people, and bring them into intimate relationship with him. He's coming back to restore his people back to himself. So much so, that intimate relationship with God that he wants, the only analogy of the greatest intimacy that we can possibly have is marriage. And he goes, that's what I want with my people. I, God, I'm looking for my lost long bride to be back in relationship with. And so when Jesus goes to the well where stuff happens, John is saying he doesn't pick the good, the beautiful, the got it together. He's not coming to just one nation, but God's looking for those who are lost. God's looking for those who are outside. God's looking for those who know they're broken. And he says, I've come for you. I've come, he says later, to seek and save the lost. This is a prophetic declaration of who God's people are. They're not an ethnic group. They're not a, a people who are really good at stuff. They're not the beautiful. They're not the powerful. They're just anyone who comes to Jesus in humility to accept him. It's why he says later on in this chapter, we read it earlier, she says, hang on a minute, but don't, if you're going to accept me, don't you need me to worship in Jerusalem? Isn't it you say I'm not enough, that there's something wrong with me. I need to become more Jewish, worship in Jerusalem for you to accept me. And he goes, look, there's a time coming. And in fact, it's now. It's not about where you worship. It's not about trying to be something other than you're not. It's not, it's not trying to fit into a religious code. It's simply about coming to me in worship and giving your life to me. That's all it is. There's no longer any boundaries between humanity. There's no in-club or out-club. All are welcome into the family of God. All are welcome to be my bride. It simply is this. Do you worship me? Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman, all are welcome. To the radically outside, I am radically welcoming. But he moves on and just continues to talk to her, not just being radically welcoming, but radically challenging. Because he does say, look, it's not about being good. It's not about where you worship. It's not about how accomplished you are. It's really, it's about, do you worship me? Do you accept me as God? Do you actually turn to me in worship? And he's using here a word for worship that we often get confused. We think worship is what we do on Sundays. So that's true, but it's only one small meaning of the word. You know, are you saying, Jesus, that I'm part of your family and your bride if I come to church and sing songs. That's kind of what we've said worship is in 21st century America. But in the Bible, worship is a, is a, a choice of your orientation in life. Worship is what you look to for the meaning of life. Worship is what you orient your life around for meaning and purpose in life. 
And Jesus is saying to her and to us, my bride, my people, those who come into my family, those who receive eternal life, are not about performance or where you worship or what you say or what you do. It's about whether you look to me as the God of your life, whether you worship me. He tries to break this down for them and for us, thankfully, with the analogy of water. He's at the well, so it kind of makes sense he's going to use water as an analogy. And he says, look, you're coming here to draw water. And the symbol of water in the first century, particularly in a desert climate like Israel, was dramatically meaningful. See, water was hard to come by. It wasn't about turning on your faucet. It was you would orient your life, your home, your towns, your villages around where the water was. Physical need for water determined almost everything about where you'd live. It even determined your wars. You'd fight over areas of land that was your source of water. And so water had this significance of, in effect, your body worships water. I need it so much. I need to orient my life, my decisions around where am I going to get my next glass of water. And Jesus is referring to this water as a metaphor for a different type of water, what he calls living water. He says, just as much as you need physical water for your body, you need living water for your soul. That we've all been made with soul thirsts longings for meaning, for purpose, for love. We are not content with ourselves. We need fulfillment. And he says, you are looking for this living water. I don't know about you, but this culture throws options to us all the time for what could be the living water to truly satisfy. You can list them, right? The more money you have, the more satisfied you'll be. The more loved you are by others, the more affirmed you are by others, the more esteemed you are. Basically, the approval for others becomes our living water. Could be money, power, sex, amazing bodies, amazing likes, blue checks, celebrity fame, career. Whatever it is, we are looking outside of ourselves for this living water that if we get that, then my thirst will be satisfied. I'll be happy, I'll be content, I'll be at peace. Jesus narrows into this conversation with this woman to identify what she's looking to, to quench her soul thirst. He says, look, we can all worship stuff, right? Just like we worship physical water, we can worship these living water things because we orient our life around our career. We orient our lives around our kids, maybe, or our marriage, or maybe orient it around our bodies. Or We orient around something going, I've got to get this. If I don't get this, then things aren't well. And he says, look, I kind of know what you're oriented around. He says, hey, uh, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. I know. See, Jesus in all of his wisdom knows that actually she's been burning through husbands. And right now he even gave up on marriage, is just living with a guy 
because she's been worshipping not career, not money, but she's been worshipping marriage. If I just get the ideal husband, if I just get into that relationship, if I just find that marriage, I'll be complete. Now Jesus says to her what she already knows. If you worship these things, thinking they're going to quench your soul, he says, if you drink this water, you will thirst again. And that's been repeated, hasn't it, in her life. Not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, over five times. She realizes that actually, if she's looking to marriage for her living water to satisfy her soul, it will disappoint disappoint, well, let me try again and again and again. If I just get this promotion, oh, I know, actually, I've got that, but if I just get that one, oh, if I just get these amount of zeros, okay, all right, that's good, but I think I need more. The thirst isn't quenched. And eventually, we too find ourselves like this woman that we've been on this treadmill, if I just get this, I will be satisfied on the inside. And eventually it fails and fails and fails and fails until eventually she just gives up. She's alone, despondent. If you look to good things to be your living water, Jesus says, you will always be thirsty. I remember when I was working in London. I didn't like my job. I was a lawyer, and uh, it was good. But I was working ridiculous hours. I was a corporate M&A transactional lawyer for venture capitalists. You know what that means if you know in that world. A phone call Friday afternoon at 4.30 was your worst nightmare because you pick it up, and there goes your weekend, right? And so um, I left eventually. I was playing golf with a friend, and a friend of his came along, and he offered me a job. And we moved. I was in my ideal job in Switzerland, moved to Geneva, Switzerland. It was brilliant. But I also, in this new company, I had to start from the bottom. They only had to promote from, the, from within policy. But they said, don't worry, you come in, you're 30, everyone else around you is 21. Don't worry, you will get a fast track and we'll promote you quickly. Just prove yourself and we'll promote you quickly. Now, the words prove yourself was like a drug to me. I'm a performance addict. I was raised in a school environment. You didn't get grades, A, B, C, or whatever. You just had rankings of where you came in the class, right? It was just a highly performance-driven culture. And so if anybody said, hey, you'll be fine. You just need to prove yourself. Man, it was like a, it was like a drug or a glass of water after a long desert. And I thought, I got this. If there's one person who can prove themselves, it's me. So I worshipped getting that promotion. It was my living water. It was what was going to give me value and significance was to get on that fast track and get promoted. It was going to prove to myself that this wasn't a wrong move. It was going to prove to myself that I was actually headed for the upper echelons of my career. And so I worked hard. Things were going really well. I loved my new job. I was traveling around Europe, lots of accolades, lots of pat on the backs. 
I was a brand manager for a certain laundry detergent and I was given more brands to take care of. It was brilliant. Things are going well. And then the day came for my annual performance review at which they would give out promotions. And so I kind of strolled into that office, sat down, and my boss, who's an amazing boss, said to me, Gare, this has been an incredible beginning to your career here. You're absolutely on the fast track. But we can't promote you. It felt like all the air had been sucked out of the room. It felt like I'd been kicked in the guts. I can't remember much of what she said after that. <laughs> but see, I'd been building my life on this promotion. I'd been worshipping. Jesus, Jesus would say, that's kind of like worship. You're worshipping this thing to be God to you. That this promotion will give you value. This promotion will save you. This promotion will give you affirmation. This promotion will give you purpose. This is what you worship as your God. And in that moment, I realized it had been taken away. She went on to explain the company was going through a tough patch and they couldn't promote anyone this year. They didn't know if they could promote next year. But I realized, oh my word, I'm not just disappointed, I'm devastated. And friends, and particularly my wife, help point, me out, help point out to me that if you don't get good things, you can be disappointed. But if you don't get your God thing, you're devastated. And she said, Gare, you're devastated. This is more than a good thing. It's become your God thing. It's become what you look to, to be the God of your life. This is what Jesus is saying to her, is saying to you and to me. He said, if you drink this water, it will let you down. <laughs> Whatever you look to is your living water. If it's not me, it will let you down. It will fail you you will thirst again. But he goes on to say, but I have come as the true living water. Now, this is again imagery where if you know your Old Testament, you'll go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 where it says, in the pattern of, the, of Eden, living water, water flows out from this Eden into the rest of the world to bring life. And then throughout the Old Testament, in the spiritually barren times of Israel, the great prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and others would look forward to, finally, some water's going to come that will give thirst, will, give, will quench the thirst of the people of God. And it's into this narrative that Jesus steps and says, look, I am that living water. I am the one that will come into your life and quench and satisfy and fill you up from within that you find your meaning and purpose and significance and value and love with me. In other words, I become the well 
of your life. I'll come into your life by my Holy Spirit and so quench you from the inside. It's like carrying around a permanent well of water in you so whether the rains come or not, whether marriage comes or not, job comes or not, finances comes or not, whether the rains come or not, you are not shaken because your well is within. I've come that you might be well people, not waiting for rain people. And if you live in Los Angeles, you know the rains may never come. (laughs) C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Most people know that they want something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. Our longings, when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. Now, I'm not even speaking of what could be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. Even in these, there's something that we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and the chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. It's into this context that Jesus says, It's me you're looking for. I am the living water that can truly quench you from within. C.S. Lewis adds, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that it was made for another world, something supernatural and eternal. And his name is Jesus. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.